So we've been focusing this season on joy, and we've had some, I think this is the fifth in our series on joy. Um, we heard Ian begin the series by talking about the joy of the Lord being our strength, kind of segueing from Nehemiah, which we had been studying together as a church. Um, then he talked about the joy of celebration, something that we are not always all that good about. And then he talked about joy being greater than happiness. And last week, we heard from Ray, who talked about finding wells of joy in, our, in the daily presence of God and how she goes about that and ways that we could go about that. But I have to say, um, though those teachings were for me the equivalent of many wells of joy, this is a little bit more difficult this week. We're turning to a less appealing topic, which is suffering. How can joy even be compatible with suffering? Because as you know, suffering is part and parcel of being human in this broken world. We all, regardless of where you are in your walk of faith, or even if you're just here today coming to inquire into faith, thinking about it, you either have, are, or will be suffering. Or sometimes it's a combination of those. Well, Christ himself told us, his followers, that in the world we would have tribulation. But then he added something remarkable. He said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus stating with his remarkable brevity and clarity this great paradox of life for the follower of Christ, that we can suffer and we can have good cheer. We can suffer and have joy. Yes, I think we might. That's what Jesus is saying. So the Bible isn't a how-to book. It's a book of truth, and it's truthful about the whole spectrum of life experience, which includes pain. God doesn't give us a one, two, three formula, which we'd probably all love to have about how to deal with pain and suffering. But one of the things the Bible does give us right in the middle of the Bible is this book called the Psalms. They're prayers, meant to be originally sung prayers. And it's a book that Jesus would have learned, sung, and even memorized from his youth up. The author of the message, Eugene Peterson, says that the Psalms are necessary, that they're in fact a school of prayer, giving voice to the whole human experience, and that they are the center where Christ worked in his prayer. And so has the church used them over the millennia, has prayed them, sung them, um, just ever since Jesus, well, before Jesus too, but it wasn't the church then. They deal with the whole spectrum of human emotion, from the highest joys to the deepest darkness, including suffering, and yes, even murderous hatred, those parts of the Psalms that we find very unappealing and hard to deal with. Well, in fact, a third, a full third of the Psalms are Psalms of suffering. They're Psalms that arise out of cries from people that are dealing with things that you can probably identify with. Grief, worry, panic, shame, guilt, disappointment, depression, rejection, loss, fear, and death. Reformer John Calvin understood that, and he called the Psalms a mirror of the soul, which I think is just a great image, a mirror of the soul. 
So after we look briefly at Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, we're going to move to focus on how one of Jesus' final utterances from the cross directs our attention to Psalm 22, because that's what he quoted from. What can we glean from that mirror of the soul, that prayer of lament and triumph, and how can it help us to work through our suffering and move toward joy, or like this good cheer that Jesus spoke of? So we're going to be examining today three points when we look at Psalm 22. The first is voicing the present, the importance of lament. The second is recalling the past, the place of protest. And the third is looking to the future, anticipatory joy. And there's not a strict order because how the prayer is structured here in Psalm 22, and indeed in many Psalms of lament, it toggles back and forth from lament to protest, and because this prayer isn't a lesson, it's a prayer. So I'd like to pray. Oh, Father, we welcome your spirit, the spirit of Jesus, here today. Thank you that you are among us, you are with us. I pray that you'd open our eyes, I pray you'd open our ears, Open our hearts to your word today, Lord. Help us to come away drawing near to you in faith and help us to come away with deeper compassion for one another and, and just such like Evan was leading us in, deep praise and ecstasy for the God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, a brief little overview. Jesus became like us in every way. He experienced the suffering that's inherent in being us. We know he experienced grief in the face of death in the case of Lazarus, although maybe most of what he was feeling was grief for Mary and Martha as they were just overcome with sadness at the loss of their brother. And maybe in a larger way, he was experiencing grief over sin and death and what they've done to this world. But he knew that God was going to raise their brother, and he knew that an unimaginable joy shortly awaited them. But you know what? Grief at another's grief is still grief. We see he grieved over the state of his beloved Jerusalem, the city which stood for all of his people, how he longed to gather them, and to comfort and protect them, but they didn't want any part of it. And so he wept at their refusal to be drawn near to him, and partly that's because he was weeping for what they were missing out on, but I think also he was weeping from that very human feeling of offering love, giving love to someone, and having it being rejected. He grieved over the hardness of men's hearts as well, it says in the scripture, but of course, the culmination of his suffering we see depicted from the Garden of Gethsemane onward. In the garden, we're told he was sorrowful, he was troubled, he was very sorrowful, even to death. And Luke even says he was in agony. Being in an agony, Luke says, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood. And part of the curse on man after the fall in Genesis was that he would live by the sweat of his brow. And Jesus was entering now into that very curse for us. Had a man ever sweated in his labor as Jesus was at this point, sweating drops of blood? No. 
Matthew records that Jesus prayed the same prayer three times in the garden, addressing God as my father, while at the same time asking if there couldn't be any other way than for him to drink this cup of suffering that was in front of him. And of course there wasn't, and he continued on to the cross. Where we know he suffered appallingly, and we wonder, what was going on inside of him? Well, the gospel writers do give us some clues by offering some of his words. Both Matthew and Mark record that Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, which of course Jesus would have learned by heart. What a human cry. Where are you, God? Matthew says Jesus uttered this in a loud voice, which actually properly translated means a scream. And that is so hard a thing to envision, God screaming, that you know it had to have been true for the gospel writers to include it. I mean, what religion would include that in their holy texts? Their God screaming. Here is Jesus tasting the depths of suffering for us. And this, these words that he stated, screamed, were the beginning of a prayer that welled up from within the fullness of him as he suffered. I'd like to start off by a wonderful quote from the message author Eugene Peterson. He says, so practically, as a pastor, I was charged with, among other things, teaching people to pray, helping the, them to find voice, to give voice to the entire experience of being human and to do it both honestly and thoroughly. I found that it was not as easy as I expected. Help and thanks are our basic prayers, but honesty and thoroughness don't come quite as spontaneously. I was convinced that only as we develop raw honesty and detailed thoroughness in our praying do we become whole, truly human in Jesus Christ, who also prayed the Psalms. So we're going to look at voicing the present, the importance of lament. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, as many of the psalms were. We don't really know, though, what prompted this in his life. There's no little attribution in the beginning that says, you know, it's because of this and he was hiding in a cave or these men were chasing him. We don't, we don't have that, which is probably fine because Jesus took it for his own situation and we, took, we can take it for our situations. Um, and that's why in some ways the Psalms are so general because they can apply to all of us down through the ages in all of our different situations of life. But I'd like you to look at something that's a marvel about it. This psalm was written by a man who had suffered deeply, obviously. He wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, through whom all scripture is inspired. It was spoken, taken on the lips of God the Son in his suffering and spoken to God the Father. So here is man and the three persons of the Trinity all involved together in this prayer. And I just think what a beautifully humble being is our God, so identified with man in his love that he didn't disdain taking a prayer written by a man on his lips as he suffered because of man and for man. It's just amazing to me. So we'll read the first 18 verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. The very first words there, my God, the very first word, my, which is repeated, sets what is about to be said in the cradle of relationship. In his moment of agony, in a scream, Jesus utters the feelings that we all have in suffering. Raw honesty, where are you? Where are you, God? But at the same time, he addresses God as his own. Why are you so far away, my God? You don't answer, my God. I can't rest at night. I'm so tormented, my God. Just what we feel in suffering. This is biblical lament. It's something we're generally not comfortable with. I know I'm not, and we're generally not very good at. I know I'm not. I'm learning. Lament is neither denying our feelings on the one hand, nor is it being overcome, allowing feelings to overcome us on the other hand. It's a third way. It's praying through our emotions, through our pain. I once read, to cry is human, to lament is Christian. So Derek Kidner, a British Old Testament scholar who wrote an excellent book about the Psalms, says, the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they are desperate. And isn't that wonderful to think that God allows these prayers in the Scripture because he understands. And he knows what we express, what comes out of our hearts and what comes out of our mouths in those times. And I want to suggest that the path to opening oneself up to God's joy in suffering is not by denying the pain on the one hand or wallowing in it, but by processing it in God's presence through lament, through complaining to God with brutal honesty. And I love what Tim Mackey, uh, pastor and scholar and you probably know him from the Bible Project. If you don't, you should check out the Bible Project. He makes a striking point. The assumption that we have when hardship comes is that God already knows what's happening. He already knows how I feel. What I need to do is to tell him exactly what he's supposed to do about it. This psalm has precisely the opposite assumption. The majority of this prayer is taken up with describing what's happening to me and how I feel about it. This is the nature of biblical lament and protest. 
we get into request mode, but the biblical prayers assume that what God is most interested in hearing is me describing how I'm processing what's happening and how I feel. We have 18 verses here of what's happening and how David feels about it, and as we will see in a few moments, just three brief verses of request, which is kind of the opposite of what we tend to do. But you see, God doesn't muzzle us. He wants to hear. I think that should be heartening to all of us. God wants to hear. He knows what's in our hearts. So, recalling the past, we're going to toggle to that. The place of protest, verses 3 through 5. They start off with yet. Yet. He's lamented. He's saying yet. He recalls to mind how God has operated in the past. Recalling the story of the deliverance and exodus when God's people were absolutely powerless to do anything about their oppression, slavery, the brutality they were experiencing from the Egyptians. So what's he doing here? Is he reminding God of what he's done? Is he doing this to argue with his own soul to kind of bring his thoughts back to the bedrock reality of this is what God has done in the past? Is he arguing with God, expressing his confusion about why did you deliver then and now from you there's only silence? I think he's doing all of those things. And Charles Spurgeon agrees with me. Here's Charles Spurgeon. While the holiness of God is in the highest degree acknowledged and adored, the afflicted speaker in this verse seems to marvel how the holy God could forsake him and be silent to his cries. The argument is, thou art holy. Oh, why is it that thou dost disregard thy holy one in his hour of sharpest anguish? We may not question the holiness of God, but we may argue from it and use it as a plea in our petitions. So we as believers have our own big deliverance story to protest from, and that's the cross. Just as the Israelites were trapped between the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them in all their chariots, we've been trapped between sin and death. But by his death, Jesus delivered us from sin, and he opened up the waters of death to give us a path to life in his presence. And we can use the cross as a plea in our petitions as we lament. Lord, you have delivered us there on the cross. You healed us. You've forgiven us. What's happening to me now? Why are you so far away from me in my suffering? Are you uncomfortable complaining to God? I know I am. I think about the Israelites complaining in the wilderness, and that was not a good scene. God judged that. But you know the difference here? Whereas the Israelites were complaining and grumbling to each other about God, the psalmist here is lamenting and protesting about God's treatment of him to God. It's bold, but he can take it. And he knows we need it. And he invites us to do it. And in fact, I want to say to you that turning to God and speaking to him about our suffering is actually an act of faith. So, now going back to lament. We head back to lament in verses 6 through 8. So here David is saying, I feel like less than a man. I feel like a worm. What an image. People around him are mocking him. They're making faces at him. They're taunting him about his faith. Utterly lonely feeling. 
So he's speaking about, once again, what he's feeling, getting it right out there. And the gospel writers, of course, looking at these verses, see an obvious parallel to the circumstances surrounding Jesus' death. But what about us? How can we relate to this? Well, what I want to suggest is I think this is the feeling of being kicked when you're down. And I can identify with this. Um, my daughter, Mersey, had been longing for a second child for, for a while. And finally, she got pregnant and she had the baby. The baby's 17 months old now. And we rejoiced. And yet at her birth, we found out that she, well, we found out later. We knew something was wrong, but actually it was Mersey herself this year that found the diagnosis. And she has a very rare genetic disorder um, so rare that there are only 64 people in the whole world that have this disorder. And it comes with a slew of complications, potential complications, even a threat to her life. There are just so many unknowns. And as I looked back through a spiritual journal this past week from last year that I'd written, and I realized that I was working through a lot of grief last year as we were kind of dealing with this unknown and giving up what we thought would be the future of, of this dear child. So anyway, and we all were as a family working through this and, and going to God. But then the end of September this last year when she was just 13 months old, she was diagnosed supposedly completely unrelated to this rare syndrome with an aggressive brain cancer. And since the beginning of December, she's been at Boston Children's, my daughter's been there with her, um, having just truly a terrible course of chemo that comes with a lot of suffering. So honestly, what did we feel when we heard this diagnosis? It was like we were kicked when we were down, or it was insult added to injury. Um, and I know that many of us feel like that, maybe not in this extreme way, but in many different ways in life. It's like my first thought was, God, how could you do this? How could you allow this to happen to this little girl. I mean, isn't this enough? Um, anyway, so we'll go back to the psalm. Verses 9 through 11. Here we have another yet. The first yet, the psalmist looked at the big picture of recalling God's faithful deliverance of Israel in the past. And now here, it's not a big picture, but it's a very personal picture that he's looking at, a personal address to God about his own origins that God has been intimately involved with him since his birth. It's almost like God is pictured here as a midwife. You took me from the womb. He says, my God, again. And just as an interesting side thought, if Jesus was, in fact, praying through the psalm on the cross, when he gets to these verses, he has a tangible, a tangible reality standing right before him of God's faithfulness, and that was his mother who we know was there. This was the very womb that he was taken from. This was recalling his very own first personal exodus, deliverance from the womb to the world. So the psalmist is saying, you were so near to me, even in my beginning, but now you're far, and what's near? Trouble is near. I think the psalm invites us to recall our own personal moments of deliverance that we've experienced in our lives. And one of the first one that comes to mind for me is our son who from like just the earliest little boy he just had a heart for Jesus he just loved Jesus and 
you know, would drag out the hamper from the bathroom and put it down and put a Bible on it and pretend to preach. And then he went to high, he went to college and he went to graduate school and he just was at the point of, I just didn't even know if he was going to come out with any faith. Questioned, went into a very deep, dark time. But God, and we cried out to God and we prayed and cried our eyes out and God answered. God delivered and Matthew is now an ordained minister, and honestly, I feel like he teaches me more about faith in Jesus Christ. He challenges me more than I ever, ever did to him as his mother growing up, and that's a personal story of deliverance for me that I can look back, and when I think about it, faith rises in me. But what are your personal stories of deliverance? You know, I just, I just say to you, don't wait till a flood of many waters is overcoming you, till suffering is overcoming you. But right now, think about your own personal stories of deliverance. Have them at the ready for when that flood comes. So then verses 12 through 18 here, more description of the trouble that's near and metaphors about how David feels and which are fully realized in Christ's sufferings. And, and this psalm is a prophetic psalm. It's amazing. We're not even going to get into that part of it. Um, but here is sorrow, pain, shame, abandonment, humiliation. So we're going to move from that and read the three, only three verses of request, of petition from the psalmist. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So 18 big, long verses of lament and protest and looking back at the acts of God and why aren't you doing it now and only three short verses of request. To sum up suffering, whether big or small, David speaking for us, for you who feel alone and isolated, sometimes kicked when we're down, we who can feel humiliated, ashamed, exhausted, face down, as the psalmist says here, in the dust of death, where is joy? Is it even possible? Well, at this point in the psalm, there's a very marked turn. Between this verse and the next verses, something remarkable has happened. And most commentators say that time has passed. Of course, we don't know how much time between the psalmist's lament and argument and his proclamation of joy and, and praise. And we're going to look at that final section of the psalm. But before that, a necessary detour to help us with that transition and first a little observation. We feel uncomfortable expressing our suffering to God, but we also feel uncomfortable, I think, with the suffering of others. Something in us wants to cajole people, to kind of rouse people out of suffering and into joy. And I just want to tell you, it does not work. Why do we feel this need to do that? Well, I think, first of all, we're anxious about their expressions of suffering, that they show that maybe they're teetering on a loss of faith. And in our compassion, we want to pull them back from the brink of that. And secondly, I think that for some of us, it makes us feel threatened in our own faith because we don't really know how to answer. We don't know how to deal with grief and suffering. But really, we can't make suffering people feel joy, but we can express sincere sympathy and sorrow for what they're going through. We can give them a hug. We can just be with them, pray, do practical acts to serve them. And so 
many times in these past months, people have come up to me and have said they have been praying, and then they've, they've added on to that, but that's not very much, or they've br brought a meal or something, but that's not very much. And I just look at them and I say, you have no idea. It is a lot. It means a lot to the person who's suffering to know that you are praying. And we feel those prayers buoying us up. So don't underestimate that. So now the detour. We're looking to the future now, anticipatory joy. The detour is Hebrews 11, and it's a chapter that I'm sure most of you are very familiar with. If you're not, you really should read it and into 12, but we're not going to go over it. I just want to say that Hebrews 11 offers us a full plate of suffering people, people who have promises from God, but who didn't receive in this life the things that were promised. We're told, though, that they see the promises and they greet them or they welcome them. That's a pretty intimate word, from afar. And as I thought about this, I, I had this picture of the father in the prodigal son story who every day from when his son was gone, he's looking, he's looking way far away, as far as he can see, to see if he sees any glimpse of that son. And then we know that when he sees the son afar off, he throws off his robes, very undignified, and runs, very undignified for this time, to greet his son. And I think that's a little bit of what is being talked about in Hebrews, that there's this posture in us wanting to greet and welcome those promises of God. Another image might be picture the heroes of faith opening their front doors to God's promised future and inviting these visions right into their homes. Think about how we can provide an honored reception in our hearts and our daily lives for promises to us. So what are these promises that they're greeting? Well, they're all pictures of God's coming kingdom, a homeland, a better country, a reward, future joys, what I'm calling here anticipated joys or anticipatory joys. But this is the chapter of faith, right? I mean, joy isn't even mentioned. The word isn't even here once in this chapter. Well, after highlighting these men and women of faith and what they've gone through and, and their posture of faith, looking ahead, the writer of Hebrews isn't really done with this story, even though it's now chapter 12. He goes on to offer one final story of another who also died in faith, who also didn't receive the promises, this side of death. And in the beginning verses of chapter 12, we are given the greatest hero of faith, yes, of course, Jesus whom we are to look to as we run this endurance race of life. The author says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So here we have another insight into Jesus. What was going on in him on the cross? He was accompanied by a joy in his suffering. What is he seeing? Not just a homeland, but us in that homeland. Not just a better country, but welcoming us into that better country. Not just any reward, but us, his reward, his bride, his beloved, his people actually willing to be gathered close to him. So yes, Hebrews 11 is the chapter on faith, but I want to say today that I think it's also the chapter of anticipated joy. 
And I loved a few weeks back when Ian used a great verb to describe kingdom joy in his teaching. He said, it's piercing the dark, desolate, and broken spaces of our world. C.S. Lewis was tracking with Ian, and he called these stabs of joy. When we experience little foretastes of something so much better than our present grief and suffering, stabs, they're sudden, deep, memorable, and fleeting. And I wanted to share with you a, a recent stab of joy in this whole process of my granddaughter, Viola, but we call her Vivi. So this is at Boston Children's Hospital. This is Vivi's crib that you see in the foreground. And on Valentine's Day, a whole bunch of nurses had, over the past day, made up these, this sign. It was for Happy Valentine's Day, but it also happened to be Vivi's 17th month birthday. And on those little hearts, which my husband and I were down there yesterday, and we got to read all these little messages. They, they just brought us to tears. They were so sweet, so loving. One of them said, Vivi, having you here at work makes me feel like I'm at home. I mean, how, how sweet is that? These nurses who actually are making my daughter and Vivi and us feel at home there. And I love her. However, the stab of joy is actually something even beyond that because the biggest thing for me is I just really want to get to know Vivi. And I don't know how much I will be able to know her in this life, how much she will be able to communicate with me. And I look forward to the day in the kingdom of God when I can know her and we can love Jesus together and we can just enjoy getting to know the intricacies of each other. I have this vision of the eternal Vivi, who she really is. And you know what? These nurses, they may not be thinking of that, but they see beyond her enlarged head. They see beyond the symptoms that she's suffering in chemo, and they've actually glimpsed a little bit of the eternal Vivi. And that's what brings me, and I believe my daughter, a stab of joy and things like this. So, um, but is anticipated joy real joy? Well, of course it is. Think about Christmas or a wedding or a vacation or a birth, all anticipated joys, right? In fact, in this world, the sad truth is that oftentimes the anticipation of a joy is actually greater than the realization because there's always a fly in the ointment or there's always the little foxes nibbling away at the vines. And of course, just the opposite is true with God's kingdom. These little stabs that we have, that I have here, are nothing, absolutely nothing, compared with the gr glorious reality of what's to come. So let's look back now at Psalm 22, where lament becomes joy, but first, one last word from Eugene Peterson that I think is lovely. All true prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It doesn't always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. There are intimations of this throughout the Psalms, and certainly in this Psalm that we're reading. Not infrequently, even in the middle of a terrible lament, defying logic and without transition, praise erupts. And now we get to read that praise. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So all of a sudden, after these terrible verses of solitary suffering preceding this, all of a sudden, here are other comrades, my brothers, the congregation of God's people. God is delivered, and David is now broadcasting, testifying to God's people. God heard. God answered. Remember Jesus' first conversation after he rose from the dead? He appeared to Mary, and after he said, don't cling to me, he asked her to go tell my brothers. Verse 22 here, go tell my brothers. Tell what? He said to Mary, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. So here Jesus is being able to embrace the people he longed to embrace. There's no difference now. His God is our God. His Father is our Father. But the telling doesn't stop here. And of course, it doesn't stop here in our lives. Who else will be told? The afflicted, the poor, the downtrodden, they're mentioned first. They shall eat and be satisfied. And not just Israel, but all the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations will join in. Verse 27, oh, and no class distinctions either above or below even the prosperous, yes, the prosperous too, shall eat and worship. Verse 29, and don't forget the dead, they too shall bow and worship. This good news of deliverance can't help but spread geographically, but also through time, where the next generation will hear, and they'll pass it on to their children, and all the way down to us. And that's what we're doing, passing it geographically, and passing it down through the generations. This joy can't be contained. It's a breathless, stumbling over itself joy. Do you see what a marvel this psalm is for Christ to have taken on his lips? Can you see how we, in turning to God and being honest with God about what our situation is and how we feel about it, lamenting in God's presence, is actually expressing faith? And can you see while how protesting that God isn't working the way we thought he should or the way we hoped he would, bringing up proofs of God's faithfulness to us in the past is actually filling our souls with truth in the darkest times. So like the heroes of faith and even Jesus, none of us is going to get all that God has for us in this life. It just won't happen. We will all go to our graves with questions, I'm sure. 
but we can glimpse our homeland. We can see it, welcome it, greet it, our homeland with Jesus, and we can experience stabs of joy in these glimpses here and now. And this is a truth. No one, no one knows joy like someone who has suffered. And no one has suffered like Jesus. But you know what? The Bible tells us also in Hebrews, no one is anointed with the oil of joy like Jesus. He's anointed with joy above his brothers. His suffering was deep. His joy is unimaginably great. So I would like to challenge you to consider turning to the Psalms in your suffering. Jesus did. <laughs> 